Our American Stories, and today we have another story from the villages in Florida. The retirement community with over 2,200 clubs, more than 150,000 residents, and over 600 holes of golf. This is where we've been sending our young faith, our faithful correspondent. Today she brings us a story from a 93-year-old World War II veteran named Donald. And by the way, there was a terrific one she did a couple of weeks ago with Gene Nupp, who was 92 and a World War II veteran. She begins by explaining to us the Honor Flights program. The Honor Flight Network is a nonprofit organization created solely to honor American veterans for all their sacrifices. They transport our heroes to Washington, D.C. to visit and reflect at their memorials. Top priority is given to the senior veterans, World War II survivors, along with those other veterans who may be terminally ill. According to the Department of Veteran Affairs, an estimated 640 World War II veterans, they die each day. Our time to express our thanks to these brave men and women is running out. On their visits, people will line up to cheer on these veterans to thank them for their service. I spoke with one of their volunteers, and she said there's nothing like seeing the faces of these men as they are acknowledged and thanked for what they have done for their country. On their return home to the villages, they are met at the airport by hundreds of people as if they are coming home from war. However, some of these men cannot travel to DC due to age and disability. So to make sure that they don't get overlooked, the Honor Flight simulated a trip to DC by taking them to the Eisenhower Recreation Center in the villages, where many have donated their war items and memorabilia. They go there for the day and then come back to the American Legion Post 347, where they were met by a crowd waving their handheld American flags, cheering them on, thanking them for all their service. And while I was there waiting for the group of veterans to come, there was music playing. And I saw a much older gentleman get up with his cane and walk to the front of the crowd. He picked up his cane and started dancing. At that point, I knew I needed to talk to him. We began by talking about his dancing and when he got his dancing skills. I go ballroom dancing, too. I had a music start. I can dance for three hours. Uh, I lived about, there's a boy about 50 miles from uh, Manhattan. I had two uncles in Vaudeville. They would come in. They used to tour the whole country, Chicago, Los Angeles. they come in New York. they always visit my parents and they would do their show for me or the family. So I was like a little 10 year old kid, I'm watching and they taught me to dance, so I just did that. That's the old soft shoe. You know in Vaudeville, you had to do everything. You had to sing, you had to act, you had to dance, you had to tell jokes. They even tried to teach me juggling. But I failed that, I, I never could juggle. I play seven instruments, but I can't sing. <laughs> what instruments do you play? Organ, piano, keyboard, uh, tenor banjo, uh, five-string banjo, mandolin, country fiddle, uh, guitar, and uh, dobro guitar. That, I, that's unbelievable. That dance I did there, the old soft shoe. I hear that it's almost like a narcotic. I gotta get up and do it. I'm 
dragged up, you know. I'm, I'm not, I don't care if there's a million people watching me. You know? Is it because of the memories that it brings back? Yeah, right, of the, my uncles and, yeah. and the, I say the good old days. Then I was able to ask Donald how he got into the military. Being a kid from upstate New York, who loved to dance? Uh, I was in the Merchant Marine. Uh, my brother was a captain, a sea captain in the Merchant Marine. And uh, uh, he used to come back from all over the world with these curios and souvenirs. And, Gee, I want to do that. So I graduated from high school. And I lived in Long Island, about 50 miles from New York City. And... Uh, <clears throat> In 1941, I graduated in June, and two weeks later, I was on the ship. And I spent 15 years in the Merchant Marine. Of course, World War II started when I was there. And so I just stayed in there for the whole 15 years. And then uh, what they put me on is uh, I was in the engine room, which are underneath the water. My job was to carry bombs, aerial bombs, from the United States to England for the old Army Air Corps and for the RAF, Real Air Force. And of course, you had to do German submarines there who tried to torpedo us so they didn't go through. So I, I did that. I was attacked 15 times. I never got sunk. And once I got hit with 9,000 tons of bombs, got hit by a torpedo that was a dud and didn't go off. Not only was he attacked 15 times and survived, he survived more than that. Well, I was in D-Day in in, uh, Normandy at Omaha Beach. And for that, that's why I have the French Legion of Honor. Our ship was one of the first ships in. And uh, what had happened at Omaha Beach, the Germans had these cannons and pillboxes. They were supposed to have been bombed out. They never were. Everyone was active. So we come in, they started shelling us. They sunk my sister ship. They hit my ship, and we had 19 casualties. And they were trying to get the troops off. Because we were bringing in the, uh, the engineering group that would try to take the mines out, you know. They were the first ones in. You couldn't have the infantrymen coming in with mines in it. So we were, that's why we were the first ones there. We just brought the, the troops in, and then we would put cargo nets over the side, and the, the soldiers would climb down. We could only get so close, else we'd be stuck. And they were getting clobbered, you know, for all the fire. What were the feelings and the thoughts going through your mind? Uh, you just don't think about it, you know. We stayed there for, uh, let's see, that was June. They kept us there going into all the beaches, U- Utah, Omaha, Sword, a lot of different names the, until September. Then they sent us back to the U.S. And when we come back, we'll hear more of Donald's story, Faith talking to Donald at the Villages, here on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the conversation between Faith and World War II veteran Donald at the Villages, where we've been sending Faith on and off now for the past couple of months, and she'll be going back for the next year. And we picked the store where we were left off. He had just shared his experiences from the beaches of Normandy. And by the way, what I love about this show is that we learn and we're reminded constantly of the different, different skill sets that bring us to victory in the battlefield. And these engineers, my goodness, if they weren't there picking those mines off those beaches in Normandy, and we want to talk about some dangerous work, folks, that's the most dangerous. Our men don't take the hill, and then we don't take Berlin. And Donald was a part of that wave, and I'm just so grateful that we get to hear from him. And let's continue the story of what he came up upon as a merchant marine on those shores. Even after all that he did and all his service with his fellow merchant marines, they were not immediately recognized. And uh, ironically, I was in the merchant marine. The merchant marine was a non-military group. This was the private ships. And of course, when the war starts out, we're taking over by the Coast Guard. And they tell us where to go and what to take, you know. So people say, what's a merchant marine? I said, who do you think brought all the ammunition, the trucks, the tanks, the airplanes in the Pacific and the Atlantic? Who do you think did that? FedEx and UPS? Oh, I need a 9,000 tons of bombs, FedEx. Can you take it there? You know, the merchant marine did it. And we got no credit for it. We had the highest killed rate, rate, not numbers, in World War II. Merchant Marine lost one out of 26 men. In fact, after the war, I went to join the American Legion. They said, you're not a veteran, you can't join. And the fellow ahead of me had stayed in the Coast Guard in the office in New York for the entire war, and they took him right in. I had gone through 15 attacks, landings at Normandy. They said, you're not a veteran. This was so unfair that eventually somebody took it to the Supreme Court. It's like, I think it was in the 90s. They said, this is ridiculous. Of course, they had the highest kill rate. They're veterans. They get all veterans' rights. But by that time... Everything was gone. All the GI Bill of Rights and free college, that was all gone. Basically, what they gave us was a flag and a grave. That was their thank you. So that left a bit of taste in our mouth. Eventually, they were considered veterans, and he was awarded with more than just a grave. I read in an article in the paper and what the, uh, what the French government has done. If you were in any battle on French soil, you're entitled to the Legion of Honor. So I was in the Normandy invasion, so that entitled me to it. So I wrote to the consulate in Miami, and they started, they said, send us all your records. I did, they went through it. They checked it out, the embassy in Washington checked it out. Went to Paris and got checked out. They said, you've been awarded it. So I had to wait a year before I actually got the medal. So I went down last year. It's only 72 years to get it since it happened. I think there were five other 90-year-olds. We each got the... Two of them didn't get it. They had died, so a daughter and a son took it for them. One had died like a week before. 
Donald felt like there was one thing that got him and his brothers through the war. I always claimed my mother, she was just a very religious lady. She prayed three boys through World War II. And each one of us should have been killed a dozen times. So, so that's the power of prayer. That's why I'm such a good Christian today. You know? Oh, that's another uh, ironic thing. All during the war, I had one brother in the Marine as a captain. And I had two, and the other older brother was in the old Army Air Corps in England. All during the war, and I was in Atlantic, Pacific, Mediterranean, Indian, every war zone I was in. I never met anybody from home. Nobody from high school, nobody from church, nobody from college, except two people, my two brothers. I was walking down the street in London, and here comes my brother from the Army Air Corps walking down the street. The second one, as I was in a Liberty ship, I was in the Philippine Islands, we pulled into Leyte. The ship pulls in next to me, it was my brother's ship, the one he was captain of. So we signaled over, and he sent a lifeboat over, and I went over and we visited him. I mean, of all the people you know, my two brothers. And of course, after the war, Donald continued to serve in the Merchant Marines. But then his son was born, and he thought it would be best to come home. For a while, he took it easy, and then he worked for different insurance companies as a boiler and machinery inspector. And of course, he went back to his ballroom dancing. As far as my dancing... Uh, I was married to a professional dancer. She taught me ballroom dancing. Taught me uh, it was very important. The man knows how to lead, so the girl knows what to do. So I'm a, a very strong leader. And uh, I, I used to go ballroom dancing four or five times a week. Now I go twice a week. You know? And uh, in the villages... Most of the men don't know how to dance. They want to play golf. And uh, I love to dance, you know. So I have 26 dance partners that I can dance. <laughs> so uh, I was playing golf, of course, when I came to the world. And I played with the same three guys. And then I had a hip replacement. When I had the hip replacement. I had to give up golf because I couldn't bend over to tee up the ball anymore. Now I have two whipping persons. So I explained to them, look guys, I'm through, I'm quitting, can't go anymore. They said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going back to ballroom dancing. Well, they cracked up. Oh, ballroom dancing. I said, now listen up, dummies, and listen carefully. I have a decision to make. I can either play golf with three fat old men that cheat on their golf scores, or I can be on a dance floor with a beautiful woman in my arms. And no brainer, dummies, no brainer. Oh, but ballroom, that's for wimps. I said, oh, and I'll get out there. And I said, I'll dance to three minutes and not even be breathing heavy. Any one of you fat guys got in there, they'd be calling 911 for an ambulance in 10 seconds. So now who's the wimp here? So that shut them up on that. Do you go out on dates? Yeah, if I I dance with somebody, we'll go to dinner or something like that. So you kind of make your way around. Yeah, right. 
Well, on Valentine's Day, I handed out 22 boxes of Valentine candy to my dance brothers. <laughs> Got to make sure they felt the love. Yeah. <laughs> and did they feel it? There, with there's no romantic thing. Well, I, I always tell them, no, just consider me an ear to listen and a shoulder to lean on. And a companion and a dance partner. Men friends say, geez, what do you do with all those women? I said, nothing. I said, uh, if I, I said, if I catch one, I wouldn't know what to do. I don't have an instruction book. In the end, I was able to ask him how his time in the service affected his life and how things have changed. I thought it was a great education. Uh, I learned geography, obviously. And, uh, and I learned how to cope with breakdowns when... You're in the middle of the ocean in a storm and your engine breaks down. You don't call AAA. It's either fix it or sink, you know? So what do you think of my, my generation? Well, good and bad. So there's a lot of good ones out there. There's a lot of lost sheep out there, too. And I, the thing that breaks my heart is the way they've been moving away from religion, you know? I mean, I'm, uh, I pray every day. And I could write a book on answered prayers. You know, Obviously, some of those answered prayers were from his mom, who, according to Donald, her prayers got them through the war. Thank you for all your service, Donald. You're greatly appreciated. And of course, thanks for taking time to share your story. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. Reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And Faith, you're making all of us cry here. Thanks for doing that. And Donald, we got to come see you. Thanks for all you gave to the country and for what you just gave to all of our listeners. A laugh, a tear. What a beautiful story. Don's story here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all of the finer things in life for your kids can. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you and your family with their terrific online courses. There are over 15 of them, and you can get them free of charge by going to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now to our story in New York City. In the late 1980s, here's Faith. New York City. A place with nicknames such as the Big Apple. The city that never sleeps. The capital of the world. The Big City. Empire State City. And Gotham? 
Why would it be nicknamed after the city from the Batman comics? Gotham is the host of rampant crime and corruption. And while the corruption is dramatized and made worse by clinically insane villains like the Joker, New York in the 1980s was certainly not going to win the award for most family-friendly. A savage racial attack in the middle-class neighborhood of Howard Beach. A mob of whites attacked three black men. The mayor of New York called it a racial lynching. Off with the camera, man! New York, under-policed city with crime out of control. The criminal justice system isn't working. They call him the subway vigilante. And in 1989, New York Times columnist Bob Herbert describes it as a city soaked in the blood of crime victims. Rapists, muggers, and other violent criminals seem to roam the city at will. Someone was murdered every four or five hours. New York in the late 1980s was a completely schizophrenic, divided city. There was enormous wealth gushing into the city out of the rise of the financial industries, which had surged beginning around 1980. So the city that had been in a big collapse for several decades had turned around. But there was a whole side to the city in which drug gangsters and crack and a kind of hard, permanently locked underclass was in place. And there was enormous suffering. It was as if there was a social moat that divided these two New Yorks. The city, when I came in, uh, was on the edge of uh, bankruptcy and people thought we would not uh, recover. We were a city coming out of a series of crises, enormous economic crisis, a school system that was in collapse political institutions that seem to be failing the people and not meeting their needs. Old, fashionable, beautiful, noble neighborhoods falling apart. And of course, overriding was crime. Several things happened to me that I just considered normal part of living in New York City. A couple of muggings and near muggings, and I didn't even report any of these things. Just kind of figured it's the way it is. People had it worked out in their heads that their block was safe. The streets they walked to get to the subway to go to work, they were okay. Their subway line, they got on the same spot in the train every day. That was okay. They had figured out a safe path through this, uh, you know, garden of terrors. And then in about 84, crack came to New York City, and that increased crime. No question uh, about it. When the crack wars happen, all of a sudden, teenagers have lots of cash and guns, and all hell breaks loose in Bedford-Stuyvesant, all hell breaks loose in Harlem, all hell breaks loose in Brownsville, East New York. We were supposed to be afraid. It would have been irrational not to be afraid. 
This is the city in which Trisha Miley finds herself. Born in New Jersey and raised in Upper St. Clair, Pennsylvania, Trisha is the youngest of three, with two older brothers. She grew up dancing and playing sports and maturing into an incredibly bright and ambitious young woman. And after attending the private women's liberal arts college Wellesley in Boston, she went on to earn her MA from Yale and her MBA in finance from the Yale School of Management, later ending up in New York City as a 28-year-old successful investment banker at Solomon Brothers, one of the top-tier investment banks on Wall Street. Trisha was the picture of independence and success, and also very well-liked. She described herself as young and that she felt oftentimes invincible. And with the same discipline that she put into school and work, she put into exercising her body. She was an avid runner. And like most dedicated runners, Trisha was determined to get her run in for the day. I had become compulsive about my running because, you know, no matter what else happened, I, you know, needed to run or exercise in some way. Way back when I was um, about 12 or 13, I, um, I actually, I, I broke my shoulder and, and from that I had to wear a sling for a while and I couldn't dance. I was very serious about dance. and. Um, you know, in, in part with dance, there's such an emphasis on your body and being thin and, and you know, thinking about, oh, you know, what, what am I going to do because I, I can't keep, you know, I can't exercise. And, and um, so, you know, what did I do? It developed into an eating disorder. I thought, well, I just won't eat. A few years later was starting to you know, be compulsive about the running. What happened one night um, after work? I had you know gotten home from work, you know, a bit after eight o'clock at night, and I had to go running. And I would you know go in Central Park, and sometimes I would go with other people, but a lot of times I just went on my own, and I went on my own. And and that night was a horrible night in Central Park. There were almost forty teenagers who were roaming the park and beating people up, and and um, I ended up being attacked and beaten, uh, bound, gagged, and raped. And from the beating, I suffered a traumatic brain injury. And um, I have no memory of it uh, because of the brain injury. I'd say almost 100% of people who have a severe brain injury have no memory of the actual event. And depending on you know, where they're hit and how they're hit, the extent of the amnesia before it, you know, varies, mm -hmm. and then also afterwards. So I have no memory for, uh, you know, about five o'clock from that evening till about six weeks later. How could this happen? She'd ran in Central Park before. Of course, it should have been okay. But it is that feeling that, oh, these kind of things or those kind of things only happen to other people, right? Certainly it won't happen to me. That's what many people think. Until the unthinkable happens. And when we come back, more on the story of Trisha Miley, the Central Park jogger, after these messages on this day in history. On this day in history, the attack and the rape occurred. 
is Our American Story, and we continue with the story of the Central Park jogger, Trisha Miley. On this day in history, the attack and rape in Central Park occurred in 1989. Let's go back to Faith. Trisha. Well, she wasn't discovered until hours later, on April 20th. Unconscious. Nearly naked. Running shirt used as a gag. With a devastating amount of blood loss. Her body temperature had dropped to 85 degrees. And once she was at the hospital, due to the blows to her head and brain damage that she suffered, Trisha's body jerked violently. So violently that she had to be strapped down to the bed where she would then remain in a coma for 12 days. This sent the media into a blaze. In chapter one of Trisha's book, she writes, Beyond the papers in the immediate area, the story is picked up within days by the Boston Globe, San Francisco Chronicle, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, Seattle Times, Detroit News, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Houston Chronicle, Dallas Times-Herald, and the Milwaukee Journal, among others. The International Herald Tribune runs a long story on the jogger, and the case is covered in the Evening Standard of London. And in December, the jogger is chosen as one of Glamour's Women of the Year. And People magazine names her one of the year's most interesting people. This attack sent the city into mourning. Was this what New York City had become? To quote her, the rape of a slim, seemingly frail, innocent woman seems a rape of the city itself. This horrific tragedy that left Trisha more than half dead was straight out of a crime show. But this was no show. It was the formidable reality of what the city had become. And yet, amidst it all, Human kindness seemed to prevail over the darkness. I tell you, you know, from from all that, I I think I I never ever felt alone. Even though at the time I didn't consciously know that there were all these people, the world out there, you know, thinking about me and praying for me and saying good intentions and 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 really they were part of my recovery. But but. Somehow, I believe I knew, and I think that helped me to move forward. Trisha, in an interview, was asked if she ever gets angry. And her response was that, the power of loving care and support was stronger than the violence that night. I'm sure that there was frustration. But she focuses on how people rallied around her to pray for her, to support her, and to be there for her. She received flowers from all over the country, including 18 roses from Frank Sinatra. But then, of course, the trials had to take place. Someone did this, and the city needed to know who. 
five young men between the ages of 15 and 16 were tried and charged for the crime. The boys' names? Corey Wise, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Yusef Salam, and Tron McRae. These boys were dubbed the Central Park Five, and in an interview with a couple of them, Raymond Santana explains the injustice they experienced during the case. Uh, we were charged with uh, rape and robbery of, of, of the female jogger that was running in the park that night. We spent, you know, upwards from six, seven to over 13 years of our lives in prison, which um, later on in 2002, uh, serial rapist who was known as Mateus Reyes, who was the East Side Slasher, came forward and, and he confessed and said that he... Uh, that he committed the crime after he met Corey Wise in Auburn. And as a result, you know, there was a, a year-long investigation and DNA match, and he he became the sole perpetrator, and our uh, convictions were vacated in 2003. To be vacated means they were treated as if the trial never took place. But I am sure for the Central Park Five that that wasn't much comfort. Reyes was already serving a life sentence and was now protected by the statute of limitations meaning too much time had passed from the crime for any claim to be filed. The city was so hungry for justice that they ignored the evidence, or lack thereof. The five men who had done the time for the crime claimed they had been coerced into their original confessions. The Central Park Five went on to sue New York City for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, an emotional distress. And in 2014, the city then settled the case for $41 million. While that is a lot of money, they'll never get those years back that they spent in prison for crimes that they didn't commit. The, our photos were given to the public. Our, um, our addresses were given to the public. You know, there were articles that were written. There was about 400 articles written on us within the first two weeks of the case. And they, they basically dissected our lives, told you where we lived at, where we were from, the type of neighborhoods. They even went to our schools and they, and they interviewed classmates, people from the neighborhood. And they put together like this whole story, you know, of how we were bad kids. The thing about it is that um, all of us, as, as, as Raymond is saying, none of us did any crimes. You know, I always maintain that the the uh, only crime that I committed that night was that I hopped the train, the, the turnstile, because that's exactly the crime I committed. The problem with this whole thing is that, as you're saying, you know, as young people, we have to be more than just followers. We have to be wise and intelligent to what's going on in our surroundings. We need to be able to understand that this is a potential pitfall. And because it's a potential pitfall, if you pick up that end of the stick, you automatically pick up the other side. We have to be able to say, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't go down that road Because the reality of the matter is You're right Sometimes you catch yourself in situations And you're at the wrong place at the wrong time And it may just be because you're hanging out on the corner And you're going to get a, 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 some milk And then you stop to talk to the guys on the corner That's drug dealers And all of a sudden you get swept you up in a raid Because you stop to talk to guys Who you know were up to no good in the first place In terms of saying something I've always said you know You have to say something Because you never know when it's going to resonate with someone Somebody told me years ago, man, pull up your pants. I'm 14 years old on 125th Street, and I'm looking at this old guy like, what, is, what does he know about, you know, uh, being down and being cool? But the guy said, man, you look crazy. So I'm, I'm saying to myself, he don't know what he's talking about. But as he left, his words resonated with me, and I looked in one of those glass mirrors on 125th and said, oh, shucks. 
that guy's right. I never wore my stuff crazy. like that again. I did look crazy. <laughs> you know, guys walking around looking like ducks with their, you know, they got their pants so low. And, you know, it's, it's just not a pretty situation and a pretty sight, especially for the young women that are walking around. I mean, I have I have five daughters. You know, you have to you have to say something. And in fact, the, the fact that the city, they wanted us to be criminals. We were infamous, but they gave us a platform that we weren't supposed to survive on. The fact that we survived now gives us a platform where we can impart information and education and proper instruction to people so that they can be guided, perhaps, by our actions. They can look at us and say, this happened to them. We don't want them to we don't want there to be another Central Park Five. It's incredibly unfortunate. While this indeed was a terrible thing that had happened to them, the Central Park Five were set on moving forward. And perhaps proved to be an example to young men around them in order that they might avoid their same fate. Similarly, Trisha chose to use the tragedy she experienced to help those around her as well. Trisha ended up going back to work, but it was actually not until 2003 that she confirmed her identity as the Central Park Jogger in her book titled, I Am the Central Park Jogger. I, the subtitle is called The Story of Hope and Possibility because to me that really is the soul of the book. Um, yes, you know, the crime was horrible and it was a crime that nearly killed me, but that healing process is something that I'm so grateful for and showed me just what the body and the mind can do. That all of us, whatever our challenges are, can do so much more than we ever thought possible, especially with you know, the kind of love and support that provides the hope that, you know, lets possibility emerge. I continue to run in a very healthy way, uh, probably a couple times a week, maybe three or four miles at a time. I think I realized that I had put my body through so much by not feeding it, you know, running it like a mad woman. I needed to, you know, to, to eat well to heal as part of the healing process. And that was, to me, actually probably one of the biggest benefits of, of the healing process. Of course, she would never have desired that such a horrible thing happen to her. However, her experiences and the hope following has inspired many. And not only that, it brought the entire city together to display human kindness. Something that many thought had disappeared long ago. This is Our American Stories. Are this days in history, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. Today on this day in history, the attack and rape of the Central Park jogger, Trisha Miley, and of course, the injustice done and the grave tragedy to those young men falsely arrested and falsely serving time for a crime they did not commit. This is Our American Stories. Just sit and putter. 
Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly. I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Barbara Streisand's remarkable performance in Funny Girl. What a singer, what an actress, what a talent. And people have opinions about Barbara Streisand, I think because she has such opinions. But my goodness, what a talent. We are here to talk about that talent and talk about, um, well, a book, a great new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power, and it's by Neil Gabler. And just a bit about Barbara Streisand before we bring Neil on. I mean, six decades she's been at it. And my goodness, five Emmys, ten Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony Award. You can go on and on. Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't think there's been a more honored female artist in the history of American show business. And that she can do it all, I think, must infuriate some people. But what we're going to dig into now is the life of Barbara Streisand. The other day we did The Life of Bob Dylan, another iconic American life, an unlikely life. And Neil, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan the other day, we played a clip, and someone had asked Dylan if he was surprised at his success. And he was like, no, I had always thought I was going to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, and not quizzically, Neil. I mean, not cockily. It wasn't, he wasn't cocky about it. It was just... Yeah, I think he thought he was predestined for greatness. And I, I, I can only assume from what I've read already that that's what you learned about Barbara Streisand. Absolutely true. Uh, I don't think you can really succeed the way that Barbara Streisand succeeded if you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. And she believed in herself against the odds. Here was a little girl who had aspired to show business from, you know, the... the the earliest age, and his own mother told her, forget that dream. You're never going to make it. You're not pretty enough. You're just not going to succeed. Here was a girl who, as she went on to high school, wouldn't even get the solo in her high school's choir. <laughs> it went to someone else who was a, a more operatic kind of singer. Here was a girl who, when she first tried to enter show business, was told repeatedly the same thing that her mother had told her by producers and agents. You're, you're just not attractive enough. You're going to have to find another profession. You're never going to succeed at this profession. Girls who look like you don't wind up being stars. Yep. So somehow against all of the odds, there was some sense of fortitude within Barbara Streisand that kept her going. You know, we're going to start off by playing a scene from the movie Funny Girl where Barbara is looking into the mirror at herself. She's wearing a chic leopard coat and hat with an expression made of equal parts admiration, disappointment, irony, and defiance. And by the way, she was capable as an actress of doing all of those things. And she greets herself. Let's take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> Neil, talk about this scene and why you open your book with it. Well, this is a scene that introduces Barbara Streisand to the world. Now, she played this role, obviously, on Broadway and became a star, but this is the opening of the movie, and it is where Barbara Streisand addresses herself. And in some ways, 
it, it, it kind of um, expresses the themes of Barbara Streisand's career, uh, of her life, and of her work. Um, and she looks in that mirror, and when she says, hello, gorgeous, I mean, there is a sense of irony. Here's a woman who's been told repeatedly, and is told in the movie as well, yep. in the role of Fanny Bryce, mm -hmm. that she's not gorgeous, she's not good-looking enough, the same thing, again, that Streisand had been told throughout her life. Um, and yet at that point, when she's looking in that mirror, she is a star already. This is how the film begins, and then we move into flashback. Uh, that irony has sort of been subverted, because she is gorgeous. She has succeeded. She has become a star. And, and so there's, there is, uh, you'll have to excuse my dog in the background. Oh, no, we love dogs in the background. It's a running theme on the show. We never get rid of them because we love dogs. Well, Go on, Neil. We have Neil. two of them, so we may hear both of them. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you get that, that, um, th that image of Streisand from the very outset of her film career um, as a woman who's overcoming the, the odds. You know, Neil, as your, as your book title articulates, this woman changed how we think about thinking about the conventions of beauty, femininity, and power. Explain how you came up with this thesis for your book. Well, actually, it was, it, it was not only the, the thesis, but it was the reason I wanted to write the book. Uh, I'm an admirer of Barbara Streisand. It's hard not to be. I mean, she is such an enormous talent. And I, I think whether you love her or not, uh, you have to admire her. Yep. Um, but that's not why I wrote the book. Um, the, the real impulse for writing the book was the way that she influenced culture. There are many great entertainers, many people we, we love to listen to, watch, uh, laugh at, whatever. But Barbara Streisand was more than that. She was one of those handful of entertainers who actually changed the culture. And the subtitle of the book, I, I hope, expresses the ways in which I think, the paramount ways in which I think that she changed the culture. She redefined our understanding of beauty. Before Barbara Streisand in entertainment, there were beauty conventions. And almost every woman had to abide by those conventions. You bet. They were all conventionally beautiful women. Barbara Streisand, I think, is a beautiful woman, but she's not conventionally beautiful in, in any sense that her predecessors were. Uh, Barbara Streisand was not a Doris Day. Uh, she looked ethnic. She acted ethnic. Yep. Um, and she also behaved in ways, and this, I think, bleeds over into the femininity issue when I talk about redefining beauty, femininity, and power. She behaved in ways that were not conventionally feminine. Neil, hold that thought, and we're going to pick up on the fem femininity. We're talking to Neil Gabler. We're talking about Barbara Streisand and his marvelous new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages with Neil. Children needing other 
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just did Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is one of those people, I believe, Neil, that changed the culture, too. And uh, and you're right. So many people are, are great entertainers, uh, but so few of them actually influence the way we think and what we do. And uh, thanks again for joining us. We pick up on that femininity point, Neil, and elaborate on that if you could. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And you, Barbara Streisand, I, I think, clearly changed the conventions of beauty in the movies. There had never been an actress who looked like her before who was not a comic actress. I mean, there have been comedians who you know, looked sort of odd, but Barbara Streisand was not a comedian at least not primarily comedian. I mean, she was a romantic lead. So she changed that. But she also didn't behave the way women generally behaved in movies. Uh, Aside from, you know, that relatively brief period in the 30s and 40s when you had Betty Davis and Jean Arthur and Joan Crawford um, and Irene Dunn and a number of stars who were tough and who were certainly the equals of their male co-stars, you know, Barbara Streisand came into the movies at a time when women were basically submissive. Yep. And yet, submissive is not a word that you would ever apply to Barbara Streisand. And, and one of the reasons that women always were submissive on screen is that that was considered feminine. I mean, women had to be submissive to the male lead. She was not. And in a way, she challenged our concept of femininity. And the fact that she came along at a time in the 1960s when feminism was at its inception, uh, I think sort of Streisand worked off of feminism and feminism worked off of Streisand. And she brought that, mainstreamed that, into the movies as no other star had done. So she changed really our concept of femininity and allowed us to accept a woman who was tough, who was often regarded as mannish. Um, but her idea was that women could be tough without losing their femininity. You bet. And that then, I think, you know, kind of leads into the notion of power. Because Barbara Streisand, both on screen and off screen, exuded a kind of power that no actress had ever exuded or exercised in, in the entertainment world, which is why she could become a producer yep. and a director. And, and that she wasn't, in, in that respect, a trailblazer. You can't say that about Betty Davis or any of those, those tough women of the 40s who I think dominated the screen. And you're right about the nature of most female leads. It was the Barbara Stanwyck's. It was the pinups almost, the Lauren Bacall's, just spectacular and beautiful and could have just modeled if they'd wanted to, Neil. No, no, I would, you're absolutely right. And, and where Barbara Streisand led, many women were able to follow. I mean, there's no Bette Midler without Barbara Streisand. That's right. I don't think there's a Lady Gaga. I think you're dead right. I'm not sure there's an Adele Mm -hmm. without Barbara Streisand. Or a Madonna. Or a Madonna. You know, Barbara Streisand just changed the whole architecture of women in entertainment. Yeah, I've just been reading about Charlie Chaplin's life, 
And he was an actor who wasn't just an actor. And on the business side, uh, he, you know, he was trying to empower artists, male particularly at the time, to take control of their own lives, you know, countering a studio system by building one himself. And in well, large measure, that's just what Barbara was doing. She did. You know, you have United Artists, uh, you know, with Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith, yep. which was a way of taking over the industry and controlling their own work. Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman formed First Artists, which was a, a later day incarnation of that. But even though First Artists was not a success and, and it didn't last, Streisand still, within the confines of Hollywood, was able to exercise the power that I referenced earlier. Um, I mean, a, a woman director? Yeah. A woman director? I mean, that was ridiculous. unheard of. Ridiculous. And, Neil, and, and even when she did it, there were a number of, of men in Hollywood who were very resistant to the idea yep. and called her all sorts of names. So Barbara Streisand had to withstand not only the abuse of, of being regarded as ugly when she was young and still you know, persevering, but also the idea of being, well, she acts like a man and she's a diva and, and all sorts of, of um, you know, opprobrium that, were, that was hurled at her. But she withstood that as well and was able to succeed as a power in the industry. And as you said, blazed a trail not only aesthetically for women, but also in terms of power for women. You know, it's interesting, Neil. Um, in the past six months, I've, I've covered two really interesting people from Brooklyn that lots of people love and lots of people hate and they have opinions. But both of them have thick skins and they're both American originals. It's interesting that Justice Scalia came from Brooklyn and people have a lot of opinions about him. But here he was <laughs> forging friendships with Justice Ginsburg. And no matter how much you wanted to not like him, you had to respect his talent and his intellect. And let's talk about Barbara's childhood and this Brooklyn thing, because it is a thing. And it, obviously she didn't have the family, but she had a lot of Brooklyn in her, Neil. Oh, she, was, she is Brooklyn personified. And there is something, you are rightly, there's something about Brooklyn that kind of pervades the people who were born there. It's the toughest borough of New York. Yep. Uh, it's not just a, a place. It's a way of being. We all know it's a way of talking as well. But it's a way of being. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a toughness as opposed to Manhattan, which is the, the elite borough of New York and which scorned Brooklyn for an awfully long time and maybe to this day still does. Yeah. But those people who were, grew up in Brooklyn grew up with thick skins, um, grew up with a sense of, of perseverance, uh, and I mean, it was also the the ethnic enclave of New York. Uh, I mean, cheek to jowl, you had Poles and and the Irish and Italians and Jews, um, and and they all somehow learned to coexist there. And that also, I think, toughened them up when they were facing mainstream Middle America, uh, and and you know, were forging their way into that America, you bet. which had resisted this, these people previously. Oh, well, you know, we did, a, we did a piece on Yogi Berra, uh, and, you know, he grew up in what was called Dago Hill in St. Louis. I mean, that's what it was called, Dago yeah. Hill. And people mm -hmm. forget that Italians faced you know, all kinds of discrimination. My goodness, Jews, uh, you know, you could write a book about Harvard and City College 
and and yeah. and not stop. But it never stopped Jews or Italians from being proud for running away from themselves and being comfortable. I think what's most important, Neil, just comfortable in their own skin and being able to withstand things. And by the way, there are no safe zones in Brooklyn. These people learn how to deal with insults, with tough times, and helicopter parents weren't protecting them. My goodness, Streisand's childhood. What I want to do here, Neil, is play a clip for you and get get your reaction to this one. Then I'm going to play another one and get your reaction as well. Uh, Let's play this first one. I had a stepfather when I was seven years old. But she says he almost never talked to her. And when he did, it was awful. She still remembers he once told her she couldn't have ice cream because she was too ugly. What made him such a creep? I mean, he didn't talk to you. The man never talked to me. Why? Why? You know, at at the time that I was a child, I mean, I just thought, I just thought that I was awful. You got about a minute right here before we go to a break, but talk about this stepfather and Barbara Streisand's really remarkable ability to deal with this. The most inappropriately named man imaginable. His name was Louis Kind, and he was anything but. <laughs> uh, and he did treat Barbara miserably, and I think in a way probably toughened her. But what made it even worse was that he had a child with Barbara's mother. Uh, Rosalind, whom he absolutely doted upon, and he and he called the two daughters Beauty, that is his own daughter Rosalind, and the Beast, his stepdaughter uh, Barbara, and and so you know this is the this is the environment in which Barbara Streisand was forged, and if you wonder why she's so tough, that goes some way to explaining why. Well, you know what, Neil? When we come back, we're going to talk more about that. You know, one of my favorite books of the last year is about resilience and how we build it in companies and human beings. And my goodness, that kind of childhood builds resilience. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages. So was love. of mine was singing. where can you be? You came at last. Love had its day. in our apartment came from father's store even clothes I'm wearing someone wore before it's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to 
truly one of the great vocal talents of all time. That wasn't enough for Barbara Streisand to conquer film and to conquer so much more. And live performance art. My goodness, there aren't many greater live performers than Barbara Streisand. Broadway wasn't big enough for her. And one of the great Broadway talents that didn't spend much time on Broadway. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just played a clip of Barbara Streisand in a remarkable interview she did with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes talking about her stepfather. Here, she's talking about her mother. My mother never said to me, you're smart, you're pretty, you're anything. You could do what you want. She, she never told me anything like that. My mother would, I would say to my mother now, why didn't you ever give me any compliments? She said, I didn't want you to get a swelled head. Barbara says her mother told her she was odd, skinny, and not pretty enough to be a movie star, that she should be a typist. Wow. And, and t- tell me this, Neil. She, she, the family didn't have money, did they? No, they did not. No, they were very poor. You know, Barbara's father died when she was 15 months old. Uh, suddenly he died. And, and so she never knew her father. And her mother remarried uh, to Louis Kind. Uh, but Louis Kind was not what one would call a, a hard and diligent worker. Um, so the, the, fa- the, the family lived in poverty. For a while they lived with uh, Barbara's grandparents. Uh, so there was never money in, in the house. I, I want to add one thing. When, when uh, her mother said that she would never be a star, uh, she told her that what she ought to be is a secretary, because that's a, that's a profession that's secure. And Barbara Streisand always said that she wore her nails so long just so she couldn't type. <laughs> that's great. That, that would preclude her from ever hitting that, hitting that road. You know, it, it's interesting. We were we're, we're going to be playing a Denzel Washington commencement speech, and he was, you know, he's a Bronx boy, and uh, grew up near Fordham University in the Bronx. And he was talking to a young graduating class about the pursuit of the arts and do not have something to fall back on. Uh, that you got to fall forward, and you got to believe in yourself, and you got to just keep going and moving forward. And my goodness, I don't think Barbara Streisand had a backup plan. Uh, let's. Oh, there was no plan B. There was never a plan B. The second she got out of high school, and she graduated high school six months early so that she could work on plan A, she went to Manhattan, and she started auditioning and trying to, to get roles. She even auditioned for the role of one of the blonde daughters in The Sound of Music, even <laughs> though no one could be more quintessentially Jewish than right. Barbara Streisand. But that's how, that's how eager she was, how determined she was, how indefatigable she was, uh, you know, to succeed. And we know the Yiddish and, word chutzpah, that's, that's what it means right there, doesn't it, Neil? She is, uh, you know, I said she was Brooklyn personified. She's also chutzpah personified. No but doubt. here's the thing about her. When we were talking about her, her Brooklyn-ness and her Jewishness, one of the things that Barbara Streisand was able to do, and I think one of the bases for her stardom, was that she took her Jewishness, and she converted it into a larger sense of otherness. You know, when you look at movie stars, and she always wanted to be a movie star, she never wanted to be a singing star, but when yep. you look at movie stars from the period before Streisand, these are people we all aspired to be. We never felt that they were outsiders. We didn't identify with them. We hoped to be them. Barbara Streisand changed that transaction. She was an outsider. She looked like us. 
She acted like us. She'd suffered many of the same indignities that we suffered. And so when Barbara Streisand came on the scene, the source of her popularity, in my estimation, was that we could identify with her, and she was our vicarious vessel for success. Yeah, I always thought you... She made her otherness our otherness. You bet. And that made her almost the underdog that we all rooted for. And also, well, we're all underdogs, most of us. And though she had this colossal voice, which I actually think when you have that much talent, Neil, it can put a distance between you and the audience. But when you're acting and you're acting the way she did, I always felt like the the ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and saying, go get him. Go get him. The ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and also saying, I know that she knows what I've been going through. That's true. She had had to go through the same thing. And it's interesting to me that when you look at her movies, her movies are about that. Yep. You know, she generally plays a woman who's been put upon, a woman who has to fight to succeed, uh, a woman who doesn't always get the guy at the end of the movie. That's right. Most of her movies are romances, but if you look at her movies, at the end of the film, whether it's, it's Funny Girl or it's The Way We Were or it's Yentl, she doesn't usually get the guy. Right. And this, by the way, is the opposite of Woody Allen, who always gets the beautiful woman. Always. That's right. That's right. Well, he's another sort of vicariousness. (laughs) Well, that is. That is a male vicariousness, and that's we we are dreamers in the end, and women, well, they live on the planet Earth. (laughs) And again, another Brooklyn boy, Woody Allen, uh, Allen Koningsberg. Uh, By the way, sort of, he never hid his Jewishness in his act, Neil, but my goodness, in his name, he certainly did. Yes. And, you know, Streisand, never, another interesting thing about her is she traded on her Jewishness. You bet. You know, most Jewish stars, most ethnic stars, let's not even, you know, uh, limit this to, to Jewish. You bet Italians. Most ethnic stars tried to hide their ethnicity because it didn't sell in Hollywood. Yep. Um, Streisand was one of those people who succeeded not in spite of her Jewishness, but because of her Jewishness. I think that's a powerful thing, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful takeaways from the book, Neil, is that she didn't run from herself, and she didn't hide. And in an era where I think Hollywood was receptive to this, I wonder how this would have worked, Neil, if Barbara were born 15 years earlier. Oh, I think it would have been different. Yep. Although it's hard to say, that because she is so unique an individual, that maybe, maybe just maybe, she did have enough fortitude to have even fought through that 15 years earlier. But you just think about one thing, Lee. Just think about the nose job. Everyone told her, you have to get a nose job. I mean, she was told this repeatedly. There were reviews of her oh, yeah. saying that, you, you know, if she gets her nose fixed, maybe she'll have a chance of succeeding. The pressure on her to get that nose fixed was pretty heavy. And she always resisted it for the very reason that you pointed out, because she said, I wouldn't be me. Yep. And by the way, one of the movie critics, I, I, was most, I thought most loathsome was John Simon. And the way he treated Barbara Streisand's looks in his movie reviews, I thought, my goodness, it's just disgraceful. And what a writer he is, by the way, and what a talent. But what a despicable man. And I, I, she had to withstand that. Her entire life, actually, Neil, and, and I think right to the end, there were these, these people who were just mean, just like that stepdad. We're, we're talking to 
one of the one of the authors of one of our favorite books of the year, and it's Neil Gabler, and the book is Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this meteoric rise to fame, that first movie, that first movie that gets a very young Barbara Streisand an Oscar, an Oscar, crazy, crazy talent, but more importantly, just crazy great fortitude and character more about this remarkable life story this is lee habib this is our american stories the life of barbara streisand Northern, south and east and west of your life i have only one request of your life that you spend it all with me Used to be so natural to talk about forever, but used to bees don't count anymore. They just lay on the floor till we sweep them away. Baby, I remember all the things you taught me. I learned how to laugh and I learned how to cry. This is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And what are the odds of this, Neil? Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were classmates at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn. That's crazy. It sure is. (laughs) You can't make that up. Hey, let's talk about her rise to fame, and it's funny, girl, and nobody's ever seen anything like it. Was anybody prepared for it, Neil? Did anyone know it was coming, except Barbara? Well, she knew it was coming once she had landed the role. Um, and there were other people who anticipated it. You know, she, you, the thing about the, Barbara Streisand, she was so young. You know, she was 21 years old when she starred in Funny Girl. Now, that is, is kind of mind-boggling to think that this woman captivates all of Broadway at that age. But she sort of knew it was going to happen. Um, I don't think she had butterflies. I don't think she, she had you know, a great deal of self-doubt. And the thing was that once she landed the role, and once the producers of the, of the play and the directors of the play saw her, they knew she was going to make it too. And opening night was historic. It's a, it's a historic night in the history of show business. Because that night, Barbara Streisand walked onto that stage and into the annals of show business history. She was the cover of Time magazine the next week. That's how immediate the impact was. And then, of course, she makes her very first movie, which was the film version of Funny Girl, and she wins the Oscar. Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's another career that has a parallel to that trajectory and that path, Neil, is there? Not that, not that rapidly. And it's not just, you know, from Broadway to Hollywood. But then at the same time, she's recording albums that win her two consecutive Grammys for Album of the Year. Uh, she's the female vocalist of the year. So she's 
at, at this very young age, you know, she's 21, 22, 23, she is triumphing in, in all of these different areas, um, in, in nightclubs as well. I mean, you know, that's another area in which she is triumphant. Uh, there's a wonderful story when she is at the Copacabana, and uh, she comes out, uh, Coconut Grove, excuse me, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, and she comes out, and you know, every star in Hollywood is there for the first nightclub appearance of Barbara Streisand. And she looks around and she says, you know, if I'd known there were going to be this many people, I would have had my nose fixed. <laughs> well, by the way, Neil, she had a wicked and great sense of humor on the screen, too, though she loved to play the... The, the you know the lead uh, character in romantic parts. My goodness, could she be funny too? Well, that was one of the things that she was able to to straddle is she could be the romantic lead, but she could also play the comedian. And and there aren't many actresses who, particularly today, you know, who can who can straddle those two. So self deprecating, you know, she could she was always able to make fun of herself. Yep. You know, she's often regarded as being a diva, but there is a there is a, a a way in which you know Barbara Streisand was able to undermine herself, and that was another bond I think between herself and her audience. It's a real talent to have that kind of self awareness too, Neil. I mean, in the end, that may be one of the greatest talents of all as an actor, an actress, and a performer is to know how you're perceived and to well get ahead of it and control the audience and get them to think what you want them to think about you. And to connect with them. Yep. You know, Barbara Streisand connected with audiences in a way that very few performers have, which I think explains the, the nearly 60-year career that she's had. She connected with audiences. They felt that, as I said earlier, she was performing their lives, not just performing for them, but performing them. The song she sings. Even you don't send me flowers, or people, or cry me a river. Um, you know, those are songs that express a longing and a loneliness that her fans could connect to. And the characters she plays on screen are characters that her fans can connect to as individuals who are outsiders, who are marginalized. Yep. Streisand understood herself and her connection to that audience. You know, it's interesting, Neil. We did an hour on Frank Sinatra. And there was always this part in the set, and we hear him saying this himself, where he said, these are the songs about losers. And, mm -hmm. and he was always writing about losers. And that kid from Hoboken, which is the Brooklyn of New Jersey, frankly, and the whole state of New Jersey sort of has this same sort of chip on its shoulder and attitude, too. And it gives us Jack Nicholson, and it gives us Bruce Willis, and it gives us Frank Sinatra, and it gives us Bruce Springsteen. There's something about these surrounding spots around New York City that, that just produced this talent. I want to talk to you about Yentl, um, because when I watched this movie, I thought this has got to be the personal desire. Uh, this, this manifests itself as something that I thought was very deep uh, and deeply held to, to Barbara Streisand. How important was that movie to her? Very important. Now, I would say that all of her movies... Almost all of her movies. Let me let me uh, let me put in that little proviso. You know, almost all of her movies were very personal. She didn't make movies that were impersonal. But Yentl was a movie she fought to make. Right. Yentl was a movie she fought years and years to make. She couldn't get financing for it. Nobody wanted her to do it. Her own boyfriend at the time, John Peters, told her she shouldn't do it, which was one of the reasons why they split. Um, but she 
persisted, as she had persisted earlier, against all odds, and wound up obviously being able to make the film, star in the film, direct the film, and make the film financially successful as well. And yes, I think there's something very personal about that. Why did she want to make it so badly? Yeah. I think that the, the idea of a woman who is scorned, a woman who is treated as an outsider, a woman who is told she will never succeed, that is her story. And then a woman who, by dressing as a man, you know, triumphs over the men, that's also part of her story. Mm-hmm. So there are some people who would say that she acted like a man. She didn't literally dress like a man, right. but she always acted like a man in Hollywood. So that's part of her story. And I think the, the whole notion that in doing so, you don't really win the man. That was something that happened to Barbara Streisand until, you know, relatively recently in her life, until 1998 when she met James Brolin uh, and got married. Uh, you know, she was someone who was almost too much of a woman for many of the men with whom she had um, had relationships. Yep. You know, she was just too tough. Yep. Too tough, um, too strong, and probably in the end a lot of the men didn't feel like men um, because of her yes. strength, Neil. I, I think that's true. Um, and she understood that as well. And I think the, the, the proof of her understanding of that is Yentl. Yep. So true. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, as I remember the movie, she she sings only in that movie. And when she's singing, it's the equivalent of a soliloquy in Shakespeare. You're getting the inner thoughts. And was that her idea? Because it was really a brilliant... A lot of people criticized her for not letting Mandy Patinkin sing, this great Broadway singer. But that wasn't her trying to not let him sing. It was oh, a dramatic no. device. And it was brilliant dramatic device. In fact, she didn't want this to be a musical. And the only way that she could get the financing for the film was to make it a musical because then they knew they could sell the album. Wow. But what they wanted was a Barbra Streisand album. (laughs) They didn't just want a cast album. Right. They wanted an album of hers. So how did she finesse this? She finessed it by doing precisely as you say, turning every song into a personal soliloquy. Well, in effect, what it does is it allows her to emote in the movie in a very powerful way to the audience, and, and allow her to, allows her to achieve some very subtle effects. I mean, one of my favorite songs in the film is No Wonder He Loves Her, which is where she's observing why Mandy Potemkin is in love with Amy Irving, because yep. Amy Irving is a conventional woman exactly. and submissive. And then she sings that song again later in the film, a reprise of that song, uh, No Wonder He Loves Her, but she's really talking about herself and saying why she loves the way that Amy Irving behaves, because it's a, it's a kind of a femininity that she can't achieve herself. And, and the, the, the first rendition of that song and its reprise is a very powerful statement in the film, and a very subtle effect in that movie. Indeed, and that, what a vulnerability uh, that she is able to express on film too, Neil, and I think that may be her greatest characteristic, and I think that's what makes so many of the great artists great. They're willing to expose their own personal wounds to the world. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity and Power, thanks for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and again, we love every kind of story. How many, how many, Shows and radio will give you an hour on John D. Rockefeller.
an hour on Justice Scalia, and an hour on Barbara Streisand. And we love doing it, and we're going to keep doing it, and you keep telling us to do more, and we're going to. And again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Go to Amazon. Order it now. We've learned to say lovers.